This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about Game of Thrones on HBO, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks A Song of Ice and Fire books, it talks in the context of the most recently released book by George R. R. Martin. You've been warned. Coming at you on a Thursday, it is the season finale episode for season one of Game of Thrones. My name is Matt Murdoch, and you are listening to Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. Thank you for listening. All of the music that you'll hear on this podcast is listed in the show notes. Please give the links that I put in those show notes a click. In other words, support those who allow me to play their music on their podcast. Also, remember, time is running out. You have just until midnight this coming Saturday, if you're listening to this on the day that it is released. Otherwise, you have until June 2nd, 2018, midnight, wherever you are in the world, be that Moscow, be that Honolulu, midnight on Saturday, June 2nd, 2018, is your deadline to get in any feedback for our feedback podcast, which will come out this coming Monday. And I'll be recording that on Sunday morning, basically, to get it out to you on the Monday. So I need your feedback by no later than midnight on Saturday. How do you submit the feedback, you ask? Well, you can send an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet to at Matt's G-O-T blog, M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T blog on Twitter. I also have a contact form up at the website. That's Matt's audio blog, M-A-T-T-S audio blog dot com. It's also where you can find links to all of the podcasts that I've done in the past and all of the back episodes of this podcast. So please give the website a visit. It also has all of the links to the podcast apps that this podcast appears on. And whatever podcast app you use, please help me out. Continue to help me out by leaving written reviews on whatever podcast app that you use that allows you to do that. Um, Or if you have an ID even on another podcast app that you don't normally use but uh, still have an ID for, I need written reviews, not just stars or up or down ratings. I need written reviews in order to be able to become more noticeable to a larger audience so that we have bigger feedback podcasts, that we have more people participating in this community because I really enjoy hearing your thoughts. Also coming up on this feedback podcast, I'll be having a little bit of news about what's going on with production of Game of Thrones and uh, maybe a couple of other special surprises as well. So uh, be sure to listen to that episode on Monday. And then on Thursday of next week, we'll be starting season two of Game of Thrones. And we'll go through that one, two episodes a week, just like we have been doing this time around. This is the finale It is Season 1, Episode 10, Fire and Blood, written 
by David Benioff and Dan Weiss, the showrunners, directed by Alan Taylor. It's a Thursday, so that means we do the music first. So here we go. An analysis of the music in HBO's Game of Thrones. Move. I won't let you go. Move. No! All right, and that scene, of course, is when John is trying to leave the wall, and Sam, of course, is trying to stop him. And it's the tail end of the Stark theme, but it's combined with parts of the main theme. And this has become somewhat of a tradition of Ramin Javadi's in the season finales. Of course, it started right here in season one, and uh, he gave everything kind of a little bit more of an epicness by combining themes that he'd been using all season with the main theme that you hear at the beginning of each episode. Each of the character themes or the situation themes becomes more important by adding the main theme to it in a way because the main theme is the statement, overall statement of the show. And now this situation is being placed into the same importance by combining the two. Um, If you ever watched Glee or if you ever hated Glee, then you probably know that these kind of combinations of songs are called mashups. That's what I call them anyway. Uh, Even in this kind of particular type of composing, film scoring, I still call them mashups. You don't have to. Uh, but I just think it's a, a fun term to apply because it does simply imply that two very separate things can fit together. And in some cases, certain parts of the harmony or the rhythm or other things like that have to be adjusted for either one theme or the other. I found that Ramin actually usually makes the main theme adapt to whatever theme that he's implying otherwise. And that's kind of an interesting thing, rather than making the theme that is being implied otherwise adapt to the main theme. In that way, even psychologically, it kind of makes the individual themes more important than the main theme because the main theme is having to adapt. Therefore, the main theme is supporting the character theme or the situation theme. Now, the... Main theme mashups tend to come in two forms. Very rarely do you have kind of like the supporting motive from the main theme and the melody from the main theme playing along with another theme. Because then you have three very strong things going on at the same time. And that's kind of hard to manage unless you want to try and be like Bach. And uh, Ramin's sound is definitely not all that Bach-oriented. It's much more in the Romantic period. Um, So he tends to stay away from having three lines going on at the same time. Sometimes he'll have more lines answering each other, and that's, that's a different thing. But in terms of going on at the same time, he typically 
only takes either the the main motive like this from Game of Thrones. Or he'll take the melody from the main theme and use it as a counterpoint to the other theme. So those are the two aspects that will be in support of the other themes. And in this very first clip that I played, we heard the tail end of the Stark theme. It's a part of the Stark theme that we rarely ever talk about. In fact, I, when I covered the Stark theme, I didn't even do it because we typically hear the first part a whole lot more. This is kind of like the tail end. Let me play for you the end of Goodbye Brother from the season one official soundtrack where you'll hear that part of the melody that was in this particular clip. Okay, so there is the melody, the end of the Stark melody, and you heard when we listened to that clip how the motive, not the melody, but the, the supporting motive from the main theme played kind of underneath all of that. And what that does is it, it gave the scene more motion. It gave the scene more urgency because you had the main theme, the Game of Thrones theme motive playing underneath the Stark theme. All of a sudden, the Starks are playing the Game of Thrones. They're winning or dying. You know, all of those kind of psychological things are implied. I always found it interesting to ask if John had escaped and went to Rob, would Rob turn him back in or cut his own head off the same way that Ned had to cut Will's head off at the beginning of the season. But I guess we could talk more about that in the main story port. Uh, this next scene that I'm going to play for you is when John decides to return and Mormont tells him that they're all going to go north of the wall in search of Benjen and to figure out what the heck the wildlings are up to and if they can figure out what the White Walkers are up to as well. Let's listen to that clip, which will combine the wall theme with the melody of the main theme. Good. Because I want you and your wolf with us when we ride out beyond the wall tomorrow. So you have the wall theme, which is already kind of epic enough in itself because it's one of the few major 
themes, which is kind of weird because it doesn't make it seem any happier. I guess it does make it seem more hopeful in a way. The fact that you've got these guys standing on the wall protecting us from whatever's north of there. Or the fact that the wall itself is some kind of major achievement to have been built in the first place. There's some pride and some happiness in that, I suppose. And that's why the major key works as opposed to a minor key, which would be scary or what have you. But you have this main melody, which is sometimes hard to distinguish in a lot of times when they're showing people going up and down the elevator or whatever. But we did cover it earlier, but here it is once again. And then this time, rather than the little motif, the little small musical figure that is being played. That's what we mean, but when we say motif, it's just a small snippet of a musical figure. Instead of that, you actually have a statement of the main melody. But the main melody has to be adjusted from minor, which it normally is, to major, in this case, so that it fits the harmony of the wall theme. And I really love that clip because not only is the main theme played major, but it's slow. It's less frantic. It's, you know, the whole rhythm, well, the tempo is slowed down to a point where that major third, the difference between the major third and the minor third the one note that makes it sound like it's in a major key or a minor key really is accentuated and gives you that feeling of hope. You know, it's like there's heroism here and that's not achieved when things are sad or when things are scary. Even though, in truth, of course, as we all know, true heroes uh, act anyway, even when they are scared or even when they are sad. But the end result for us looking on the outside is that, oh, look at them. They're so inspiring. And so the major third, the major sound works better than the minor sound. And, and we're all like fist pumping now. We're ready to go with them north of the wall to see what's out there. I love that so much. I think that's fantastic. And I have one more example here. And uh, in this particular example, it's at the very end. It's Daenerys and the birth of the dragons. And in this case, sometimes the main melody works in support with uh, motives, again, going on underneath that one small figure. Or sometimes the main theme melody works in counterpoint to Daenerys's theme the theme that we most associate Daenerys with. Remember the last episode I discussed, uh, Love in the Eyes, and how that actually became three separate themes for three different things. But in this particular case, it's the main melody that is emphasized. Now, right before the pyre happens, you actually hear the dragon connection. And the first part of the theme, which is her connection with Drogo, as she goes into the pyre. And then this is after the fire has burned down and Jorah discovers her with dragons. 
and we get to have this huge epic moment of now Daenerys is in the Game of Thrones herself and she's got dragons to boot. So here's that clip. Blood of my blood. So there you go. There are some of the hallmarks of Ramin Javadi's finale approach. How he finaleizes things as opposed to finalizes things. He finaleizes them by doing mashups, by adding, as you noticed probably in this one in particular, something that you noted was the voice. The voice becomes a big part of Ramin Javadi's finales. Sometimes in the end credits, sometimes in the big scene leading up to the very end. A lot of times there, there is a, a vocal element to it as well. But just so you recognize, I'm sure you recognize the main theme parts in there. Uh, and then, of course, it was in counterpoint to this melody of Daenerys's. And that's going to do it for this time. I'm going to leave you with actually the end credits music because it continued to do this kind of mashup thing between the Game of Thrones theme and Daenerys' theme as the credits rolled at the end of season one. I'll be back to talk about the actual episode, season one, episode 10, Fire and Blood, in just a second. Okay, so season one, episode 10, Fire and Blood, written by the showrunners Benioff and Weiss, directed by Alan Taylor. Before I get into my three big things, I guess on the surface, there's quite a few things to talk about as well, because there was a ton of emotion in this episode. Actually, I remember there being some comments at the end of season one. It's like, well, wait a minute. We're, you know, you call that a finale? What's going on? And we were all trying to figure out what the implication was. But the truth of the matter is, is that on a sub level, so much emotion was being put in us about things like, you know, the horror for Arya Stark or the fact that Sansa fainted or the fact that Sansa was actually willing to push 
Joffrey off of a ledge and maybe even fall to her own death, probably a, a, a murder-suicide kind of thing. I mean, those are all really emotional things. And that kind of is what built up the whole idea of, well, I've got to come back next season and see this more so than what actually happened in the episode. And some of the episode was the fist pumping kind, like I mentioned in the music section, that whole scene of the Night's Watch going out beyond the wall. I was just like, yeah, you know, the music really helped that. Uh, but Mormont's speech was very heroic and, and fist pumping in a way. And then you also had the extreme sadness. And again, I don't get why you people like Drogo so much, but I felt terrible for Danny, who obviously feels something for Drogo. I just felt awful for her having to end Drogo's life in that way. It's amazing how, you know, the Dr. Kevorkian issue came up in a fantasy story, right? So it's just a real emotional roller coaster. this episode is. The other fist-pumping thing, I think, is is Rob getting named King of the North. Uh, there's that epic Sam and Grin and Pip all saying the Night's Watch oath together. And all, all of these really cool moments that individually probably don't seem that big of a deal. But collectively, they start to weigh on you. And that's that's pretty amazing. But let's move on to my three big things for this episode. Three, three big things. And obviously, how can the first big thing not be dragons, right? But it's not just the dragons that makes it big. Although, I mean, think about what a game changer this really is. The Game of Thrones, not only do you win or you die, but now the game has completely changed. You have air superiority factors to think about just think about the loot train in season seven and how Daenerys was just absolutely demolishing it now granted uh, there are ways to combat dragons we've we've seen that um, obviously the night king has a super javelin that can kill dragons and I think the scorpion concept from the Lannister army is is similar it's just that it doesn't have any magic in it to bring a dragon down. But there is that there is that factor. Is that, is that, that now Daenerys has elevated her chances in the Game of Thrones remarkably. The other thing is the process. We knew up to this point that Daenerys was resistant to heat. That her skin didn't burn from extreme heat. But fire? Fire that was enough to burn away all of her clothes. Yet not burn her hair not burn her skin, she is impervious to fire. And I'm, I'm just going to say a little thing about the books here. Folks, don't curl your nose in disgust or things like that. This is not a complaint. Actually, this is something in support of what David Dan did. In the books, this event is what George calls the, the kind of the one-time miracle. Although to me, there are implications that Daenerys has other resistances to heat um, throughout the course of the book series. But regardless, this direct fire event is a once in a lifetime thing. Now in the show, Dave and Dan said, wait a minute, 
If she can survive it once, she can survive it multiple times. And so in the season two finale, Daenerys actually resists fire as the dragons are shooting it at Pirate Bree. She, they're, they're blowing the flames that are touching her in some places on her arms and stuff like that, but it doesn't bother her. And of course, in season six, she burns down the whole interior of that tempo in Vestothrak and all of the people in it, and then emerges, of course, with all of her clothes burned off. But she, once again, is fine. Now, we haven't had that event happen in the books yet, so maybe George will bring it back for, for that one. Maybe he won't. doesn't really matter. The point being is that I liked that Dave and Dan stayed consistent with it. They built up your expectation to this moment right here, and then they continued to enforce that notion far beyond. The miraculous event is the birth of the dragons, not Daenerys' resistance to fire. Oh, truly, that's miraculous. I love that it is miraculous. Um, You know, it's not like anybody else can resist fire. We certainly know Viserys can't. And he was somebody who thought he was a dragon. Um, We've seen... That Jon Snow, even though he is Aegon Targaryen, the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna, he is not resistant to fire. We saw that in this season where his hand uh, was burned when he grabbed that lamp to get rid of the white that was trying to attack Mormont. So Daenerys is miraculously unique in herself. But the miracle of the event is not her resistance to fire. The miracle of the event is the birth of the dragons. And that's implied in George's books also. It's just that because there is only one event in Daenerys' life, where so far in the books, where her, her life is put against the flame, literally, then the flame seems as much of a miracle to many book readers, which caused them to complain about what the show did. But I actually like what the show did better. Regardless of that, the journey to this point for Daenerys, especially just in this episode, she loses her baby. There's implications by Miriam Mazdor that the baby was somewhat of a dragon itself. I don't know how much of that is supposed to be metaphor or if that was Miriam Asdor simply telling Daenerys things, horrible things, to just upset Daenerys because Miriam Asdor is out for revenge. Her entire village was killed, as she tells Daenerys, basically. She had already been raped several times before Daenerys, quote-unquote, saved her. I mean, do means justify the ends, I don't know, but it it just feels like if if anybody had a right to be angry, it was Miriam Asdur uh, for what Drogo had done. The problem was is that Daenerys, having signed on with Drogo, also had to pay that price. But Miriam Asdur, by offering this little bit of magic that really destroyed Daenerys' life in many ways, also gave Daenerys a rebirth of life. Because when she found out what the ceremony was about and everything, then she decided to have her own ceremony, where she would sacrifice Miriamad's door's life in order to bring the dragons back. It's also 
the most ruthless thing that we've seen Daenerys do to date. And we all know that Tyrion has brought up and cautioned Daenerys against embracing her father's tendencies. Now, this may be one of the instances where I really can't blame Daenerys for her ruthlessness. First of all, it has a purpose. It has a purpose for bringing dragons back into the world. Second of all, Mary killed her son. I, I don't think a woman who can avenge the death of her child, the murdering of her child, not saying it's excusable, I'm just saying that it's more understandable than most murder. <laughs> just put it that way. But let's also not forget that Daenerys chose to end Drogo's life in this episode as well. A mercy killing is what some people would say. It's the Kovorkian thing, as I brought up just a few minutes ago. I'm not so sure that I'm okay with that as much as I am with um, the out and out killing of Mary Mazdur. And I'm not sure why that is. I don't know why I'm conflicted in that way because truly Drogo deserved a better life than the one he was going to have. But it, it does pose for an interesting moral debate, I suppose, because Mary points out, well, this is a life. But Mary also says it's not much of a life, but it's life. And D Danny perceives that as the truth. And decides Drogo is better off in the Nightlands. Doesn't matter how I feel about her choice, I guess. She makes the choice anyway. It's not like I could jump onto the screen and stop her. But it is part of the whole process of Danny. First, think about the beginning of this season. Where she's just someone who just takes orders. And then towards the middle of the season, she's a person who is giving orders indirectly through her husband Drogo and then finally she's full out giving orders and now she's going to be the leader of a somewhat ragtag fugitive fleet of people she is Battlestar Galactica anyway uh, she is becoming a leader before she really knows how to be a leader. And this is the dilemma for Daenerys. I'm almost all throughout the series. Is that the magic that is within her. The resistance to the fire. The bringing the dragons to life. All of this is a bigger responsibility. Than what Daenerys is. Capable of choosing to have. Right now. In a lot of ways. Or at least by my perception. If you have a different perception. Feel free to send me an email, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, or you can tweet at mattsgotblog. Nonetheless, there are dragons in the world, so that's my first big thing. My second big thing, what I have here is Tyrion becoming Hand of the King, or at least being named by Tywin to act in Tywin's stead as Hand of the King. Temporary Hand of the King which he gets to spend a whole season doing. 
until the Battle of Blackwater. Joffrey, of course, had named Tywin, and it's going to be a big disappointment to everybody that Tyrion is there and actually does a decent job. In fact, I would say that Tyrion has done a better job as Hand of the King to Joffrey Baratheon, Joffrey Lannister, than he actually has as Hand of the King to Daenerys. I'm not exactly sure what Tyrion has accomplished as Hand of the King to Daenerys, other than being supportive, cautioning her against her demons. And that's important, cautioning Daenerys against her demons, as I just said in the very first part. That, that's a huge thing. To be able to speak truth to power is one of the most important things about being an advisor to a leader, right? And I don't feel like Tyrion has ever had that problem. Given his situation, he probably feels like, you know, what have I got to lose? I might as well just shoot from the hip. He also knows how to con people. He also knows how to outthink people. And you would think that all of this would have benefited Daenerys at some point. But right now, I just don't see it. Nonetheless, Tyrion does a good job in season two being Hand of the King. And this is a huge moment. It also points to the moment of the relationship between Tywin and Tyrion and the story that Tyrion told in the prior episode. Because while Tywin is showing trust in Tyrion, he's not showing that much trust in Tyrion. You will not bring that woman to court. That obviously shows that Tywin doesn't trust Tyrion at all. That Tyrion is nothing more than a placeholder to Tywin. In a way. I guess he does feel like that Tyrion can keep Joffrey under control to a certain extent. And can keep Cersei under control to a certain extent. And of course a lot of what season two is. Is them two sparring. And Tyrion just slapping Joffrey a lot. But... This whole dynamic between him and, and Shay and Tywin and this position is going to be huge. It's going to shape Tywin's whole future in a lot of ways, right down to the end of season four. And then his next step is being shipped over to Essos with Varys, and he ends up coming into Daenerys' service as well. So here's where the prep begins for Tyrion's eventual position as a recognized hand of the queen, as opposed to hand of the king for just a temporary position. My third big thing is another position being filled. The king in the north position is being brought back. As the great John Umber says in this episode, we knelt the dragons before. There aren't any dragons left. Well, there are. But Great John Umber doesn't know or care about those dragons. And so he says we shouldn't kneel before any more kings. A little bit of the history of the Starks kneeling to the Targaryens. There was a season, I don't even remember what season was, but there's a Blu-ray extra that tells the story of how Torrin Stark, Benthany, was going to fight him, saw the dragons, wanted to save his people, and so he bent the knee. And... 
I find that parallel actually interesting in the fact that John, once he becomes king in the north, also bends the knee to a Targaryen. So what the great John Umber says here is we only kneel to dragons. That's pretty much the case. Because the rest of the time, the north is pretty much in open rebellion of the Baratheon throne from this point onward. And only comes back to a potential throne of Daenerys to bend the knee once again. So I find all that interesting. But here the position is recreated and we get Rob nominated to the position. And of course, like I just said, John is now in the position today. So the North is really still in open rebellion of the throne as it currently exists, but will pledge itself to the throne of Daenerys once that happens. Now, once John and Daenerys all learn the truth of what's going on with John's heritage, who knows what will change, what won't change. Um, one can only speculate at this point, although there aren't too many guesses to make. There's a chance that Daenerys will just give in and say, okay, John, you will be our king if we win. Or there's a chance that Daenerys will say, hey, I'm going to eliminate John because he's ahead of me in the potential heir list. You know, there, there aren't too many choices here as to what can happen. So you, you can flip a coin and figure one way or the other is going to fall. But what's the point of speculating when we're just going to get to find out and feel the emotion of it? I don't really ever feel the need to be right about anything. I just want to experience it. So that's why I don't make predictions on that kind of thing. But this coronation of Rob's was actually pretty emotional for me. And one of the things that stuck out to me was Theon. And thinking about what an effect that his father and his sister's words must have had on him when he goes back to Pike. Because here, he is in total devotion to Rob. And he even goes to Pike. He even goes to the Iron Islands with full intent of helping his house restore power and autonomy to the Iron Islands, but in service of Rob. And somehow, Balon and even Yara convince Theon how wrong he is to have even brought these terms to Balon. But here, Theon is all about Rob. And the trust that, that Rob places in Theon is an indication of how much Rob is hurt and how angry Rob is when Theon ends up taking Winterfell for the Iron Islands. All of that stuff really came to bear for me this time around. And Theon's arc is a pathetic redemptive arc in a way, I suppose. He's one of those broken things that I really root for now. God, did I hate him for several seasons. I even really never liked him in this season. He's a punk. But for some reason, I, I got a little soft spot in my heart for him now that he's a, a completely broken thing and trying to come back from that. Here's some questions. 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 First question. Sansa. Did this episode, the fact that she started talking about her brother taking Joffrey's head, the fact that she took a beating, uh, 
from Sir Marin. I know there's a lot of Sansa haters out there. I know there's a lot of Sansa haters out there. I'm not one of them. I, I just can't join in your ranks. Sansa is as much one of those broken things now as any of the other characters. How can you not have empathy for her if you have empathy for the other broken things in this story? That That's my question. That's my absolute imperative, moral, blah, blah. No, I understand. I understand that there, this season gives you a lot of reason to hate Sansa for how teenagery she is. But hey, she's a teenager. And now, this event, from the moment that she sees her father get his head taken off, she's not a child anymore. She's still a naive young adult. But she knows horror. She knows how certain choices can affect outcome. And don't you think for a minute that she's not sorry about those kind of things for the rest of her life. Is she opinionated? Heck yeah. Does she have a sense of self-importance? Yes, she does. So does Donald Trump. For that matter, so does Barack Obama. Whether you think he a good leader or a terrible leader, that's up to you. I'm just saying that that comes with leadership, be it good or bad. Self-importance has to come with it. And here, I honestly believe, and I want you to answer this question as well. Here, when she makes that decision to push Joffrey off of the ledge to the floor below, do you think she was just going to push him? Or do you think she was going to jump too? Because I honestly believe that Sansa is so upset at that point that she's going to take her own life and take him with her. Or push him off and then jump off the other way. One, one of those things, it was like there, there was the end, how she could make it end correctly. And even in a way that happens with all those hero songs that she so loves. The sacrificial act. Now, she's not doing it to be put in the songs, but she thinks that maybe it would be more acceptable what she did if she loses her own life, too. Or maybe she just thinks that she doesn't want to be around anymore. I think that that's what's going on in Sansa's mind. Obviously, Joffrey going off the edge is in her mind. But do you think she wants to go too? That's my question to you. Another thing about that scene is Sir Marin. Oh, It's interesting that he's the one who is appointed by Joffrey to hit Sansa. Especially given what we see about him is that season five where he comes to Bravos and his kind of selection in the brothel is really demented. Does that behavior spawn from here, this moment with Sansa where he gets to beat a girl and then he just starts wanting them to be younger and younger and younger? Or is this something that he's always had a tendency to do and somehow Joffrey has learned about it, and so therefore Joffrey has made Sir Marin Sansa's beater? I don't know. Or is it just a happy coincidence that Joffrey doesn't even know about it, but he just knows that Sir Marin's pretty mean and Sir Marin can, can whip Sansa pretty good? 
So there's a question there. Another thing about this scene, all the questions coming from this scene. Did you start to like the hound here because he stopped Sansa? Or did you hate the hound even more because he stopped Sansa? He did save Sansa from death. Because either way, whether she chose to end her own life by jumping off or by going over with Joffrey, or if she just pushed Joffrey off, she was done. She would have been killed by the Kingsguard on the spot. So the Hound did save her life. Did that make you feel better about him? Or did it make you feel worse because he stopped her from getting the revenge? We've not had a lot about him. I mean, and everything has been conflicting. I guess my question should be is, how do you feel about the Hound at this point in the series? Don't think about what you learn later on. Don't think about anything else other than what you've just seen this season. Or do think about that stuff and think about whether what you learned in this season was an indicator of how you would feel later. Because there's a lot of conflicting stuff. Because he does kill Micah the Butcher's Boy. But here he saves Sansa. So how do you feel about the Hound? All right, here's another question. I got lots of questions for this episode, actually. And they're, they're more just hypotheticals, but, or what ifs. Here's a question, though. Shay really turns on Tyrion when he starts to tell her the story about how Tywin doesn't want her to go down to court with him. Do you think it was because she had already thought that she wanted to go to the city to be part of Tyrion's life? Or is it just because she wants the money? And I think that answer will show you how you really feel about Shay overall. Because if you think that she's going because she wants to be part of this whole process, not the decision-making or anything. She doesn't like that. She just wants to be part of the city. And maybe she just wants to be hanging out with Tyrion. If you think that, then you look at what happens in the fourth season as a true betrayal. But if you look at it at the fact that she just wants to come down there because she wants to continue to be paid really well by Tyrion Lannister, then what happens at the end of season four doesn't seem out of character. So please let me know what your answer to that question would be because um, it's fun to think about how you really feel about a character now that their whole arc has gone through and how true was that arc to the first time that you met them. One more question. And that is, if John had made it to Rob, if he'd have gotten away from the Night's Watch, made it past whoever was left at Winterfell at the time, gone down the King's Road, found Rob in the Riverlands or wherever he is by the time that he gets to him, shows up and says, hey, I left the Night's Watch. I'm here to help fight with you. We're going to get even for what they did to Dad. What does Rob do? We've heard Rob say a lot of times in this season already, my father would have done this. Well, Ned beheaded Will for deserting. Would Rob have an inclination to behead John? What would Catelyn have urged Rob to do? Hmm. That would be interesting at the, at the point of the relationship that Catelyn has with John there. So, what what would Rob do? Do you think that he would have 
not only the inclination, but also the stones to cut John's head off himself. He doesn't have ice. And in this episode, he's already ruined his sword. So he's going to have to borrow somebody else's sword. So it's not going to be an easy kill. Rather than the kill uh, like it was for Will, might ended up being more like the kill it was for Roderick Cassell uh, by Theon. Although Rob did a pretty good job with the uh, with the car Stark fella. So he probably would have done a pretty good job with John if he had the stones to do so. Do you think he would? Do you think he should? And that's going to do it for the questions. Remember, you have just a day or two left uh, by the clock. If you're listening to this when it first comes out, you only have until June 2nd, 2018 to answer these important questions or to offer your own questions in the feedback. June 2nd, 2018 is your deadline. Here's a couple more little tidbits to add on to the conversation. Tidbits. Jamie and Catelyn, actually, is what I kind of like to talk about because Jamie is really interesting in this, and I love how it takes Catelyn aback. He's brutally honest about everything except the reason why. He won't betray his sister. He'll do anything to betray himself. He's actually completely honest. And yeah, he's still the guy who pushed Bran out the window, but he's not afraid to admit it. He's just afraid to admit why, because that would affect somebody besides just himself. As I've covered this series throughout the seasons, if you go back and listen to old podcast Winterfells, you'll hear me say that there are two characters who have their own code. Jamie's one of them. The Hound is the other. And they are true to that code, regardless. To me, there's no redemptive arc in Jamie. He's just this person who has this code, who has done by this code. Everything that he's done that's been somewhat horrible has been about Cersei. That doesn't make it right, but he pushed a boy out a window to protect Cersei. And he's willing to admit that he pushed a boy out a window, but he won't say why in order to protect Cersei. He basically cannot stand anybody else besides himself being hurt, no matter what he's protecting. That's his code. You see that with Brienne, where he saves her from being raped. It's something he would have done 10 years before. It's not something that, you know, suddenly came out of the blue because he loves Brienne. Stop shipping that. Or ship it. I don't care. But Jamie... And Catelyn's conversation was amazing this time, emotionally. And just for the clairvoyance that Jamie's code is presented right there. He was ready to take Ned's head off. But he wasn't going to take Ned's head off because Ned had been ganged up on back in The Lion and the Wolf. The code is there. You just have to see it and decipher it. Many of you have, I know. I'm just saying there's no reason to say there's a redemptive arc in Jamie when really, to me, 
and feel free to write in and argue with me about this because I think many people will. But really, to me, Jamie hasn't changed one iota. Jamie has always been Jamie. It just depends on which side Jamie being Jamie falls on. And lately, Jamie being Jamie has fallen on the side of doing for good rather than doing for evil. That's all. That's the only difference. The fun thing will be to find out if him and Cersei are really over who Jamie is without Cersei, because a lot of what has happened that's been on the bad side for Jamie has been because or about Cersei. So we'll have to see what happens there. I already mentioned this, of course, but Sansa sees the mess that she's made. I That was so horrific for me to see a girl being put through that by a brat and by the beating from a monster and being saved by yet another monster of sorts. At the same time, her sister found a friend because she was in a position where she could be saved. Ned saw her, yelled to Yorin Baylor where the statue was, and uh, Yorin came and found her cut her hair off, made her into a boy so that she could go to the Night's Watch, basically so he could get her back to Winterfell. And in the course of being put in with everybody else in the Night's Watch, Arya's first pack, her first little wolf pack of her own, is right there. She's got Gendry there. She's got Hot Pie there. She's got Lamy there. Now, she's going to lose Lamy pretty quick. But she's going to have Hot Pie and Gendry for better than a season. And people will even become part of her list because of Gendry. So just seeing the four of them in the same place and thinking about those adventures together and the Heron Hall thing and all of that. Speaking of which, wasn't it cool in the cage scene? Uh, nice little trick there by the casting department. They said, can you please just put a hood over Jock and Hagar, because we don't know who's going to play Jock and Hagar yet. So just put a hood over Jock and Hagar, and all will be good. Or it might have been Dave and Dan that said that, or it might have been the director that considered that. Whoever it was, it was a smart idea, because they could then cast whoever they wanted without having to really cast anybody. Probably didn't pay that guy too much either. <laughs> I didn't really talk about it enough, probably in the musical analysis, but I loved the development of the dragon connection theme when Daenerys is putting the eggs on the pyre. At first, it's still that very high bell background thing. And then as she starts to make her speech to the slaves and all that and freeing them, that dragon connection part of the theme uh, becomes strong. It gets played in the strings as the fire is being lit and all of that stuff. So again, uh, it's, it's the fact that it's just kind of there in the background, the eggs are still embryonic. There's still nothing happening there, but as she is becoming the dragon, the connection to the dragon eggs is growing. And so the music grows. So I really love that. And one final piece here. Uh, I love this from Jor Mormont when he asked John the question, when dead men and worse are coming from us, do you think it matters who's sitting the Iron Throne? 
is that not the epitome of this series? The fact that we've seen the mistakes that are being made because everybody is concerned about who's sitting on the Iron Throne or who should sit on the Iron Throne rather than what's up there on the north that has now come through the wall at the end of season seven. And John gives the right answer. None of the rest of the realm seems to. That's all I got for this episode. If you have any thoughts, feel free to write me M-A-T-T-S audio blog at gmail.com or M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog on Twitter. If you want it to be included in the feedback podcast, which will come out uh, this following Monday, you have until June 2nd, 2018. That's your deadline. Get your stuff to me. I would love to hear from you. I'd also love to hear your three words for this episode. And that's next. Describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words. So, three words. This is where we try to describe the episode in three words for those of you who are new to our game. And I do invite you to take any season one episode and try and describe it in three words and get it to me in the next couple of days. You have until June 2nd, 2018. And if you're listening to this on Thursday, then that means you only have really two days, one full day to get any feedback submissions in. June 2nd, 2018 is your deadline. But in describing this episode in three words, I actually came up with just an overall impression of the episode. And my three words are a better rewatch. I honestly feel like that this time around, out of all of the episodes, rewatching these first 10 episodes of season one, I felt better about this episode than I did the first time that I saw it. I wasn't an apologist for this episode when it first came out. Now, I hadn't started any podcasting on Game of Thrones yet. I was still appearing occasionally on the film list with Heath, and there was lots of talk about explosions, and where were the explosions? It's a season finale. There's no explosions. Where are they? It really isn't totally an explosion kind of series. Oh, sure. We've had some explosions in season finales. Think about the wall exploding just in season seven. But this isn't the kind of thing that happens and I tried to relate it in the books as an epilogue you know it's basically the last summing up of things but you do have a big event in the fact that dragons are in the world and that seemed to be the big thing to talk about at the time when this first came out but I find much more interesting this time thinking about Sansa thinking about Tyrion and Shay thinking about all of these other things that seem very unimportant the first time you watch this episode or just completely character-centric in this episode that end up becoming even in some cases plot-oriented in future seasons so those are my three words a better rewatch and i can't wait to hear yours i hope you submit them to me you can send an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com or you can tweet at mattsgotblog. Hurry, time is running out to submit for this segment or for our next segment, 
the brothel mates of the episode. Mates of the episode, the best couplings of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love. Brothelmates of the episode is where we try to find the best coupling for the episode. doesn't necessarily have to be two people. It can be a person and an idea or a person and an object or a person and whatever. Or it can be two people. For me, this time, my brothelmates are Jamie and his code. It really hit me this time that Jamie's code has always been there. It's always been there. It was exhibited with Ned in The Lion and the Wolf. It was exhibited here with Catelyn. And he gets hit on all sides because he lives by his own code. His father doesn't like the fact that he didn't just go ahead and take care of Ned Stark. His captor doesn't like the fact that he just so freely admitted that he did push Bran out a window, but didn't care to tell that captor why. This is Jamie's truest moment that we've seen so far. And again, it does not excuse the man for pushing a kid out the window. Let's make this perfectly clear. Jamie doesn't have a redemptive arc. Jamie is just Jamie, and whatever Jamie does, depending on which side of right or wrong it falls on, doesn't really matter. It's just Jamie being Jamie. I know I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for that. Send it to me. I can't wait to share it with everybody who's listening to this podcast. Send your brothel mates for this episode or any feedback regarding my brothel mates for this episode uh, to Matt's audioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com or M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T blog on Twitter. Can't wait to hear from you. Be back with some final thoughts here in just a second. Thanks for getting through season one. With me, if you missed any of the episodes, you can find them probably on your podcast apps, or if the podcast app only has a certain number of spaces that it will allow, and you can't find, say, like the very first episode, episode zero, the placeholder episode, then uh, go to mattsaudioblog.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. You can find the links to all of the podcast apps there as well. And I would really appreciate it if you would take the time to leave me a written review 
as to how I can improve the show or what you like or dislike about this show. The written reviews really help me stay more noticeable among the 14 billion other Game of Thrones podcasts that are out there. Also, if you could take the time to read the information with each podcast, the show notes, find the websites that I've provided for the music that is provided on these podcasts and just give them a click. Give them, check out the artist. You don't have to like them. You can just give them a click because that helps me continue to be allowed to play this music on these podcasts. And again, if you have any feedback, your time is running very, very short. If you're just getting this episode on the Thursday that it is released, you really only have today and tomorrow to get your feedback into me. And I would love to have a big feedback episode. That's what's coming up next Monday. We will have a news section where we will catch you up to speed on production of Game of Thrones. No spoilers, I promise. And we'll have uh, your feedback as well as maybe your three words and your, your brothel mates of the week if I get enough of them sent in. June 2nd, 2018 is your deadline for feedback. We'll talk to you on Monday with that feedback. Take care.